From the newsrooms of The Daily Press and The Virginian Pilot, this is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Marie Albigez. Each week, we interview reporters from our newsrooms about how and why they covered a story. This week, state politics reporter Dave Ress and I talk about what's at stake for Tuesday's elections and the General Assembly. Here's me and Dave. Dave Ress, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we have elections in one day, and all 140 seats in the General Assembly are up for election, known as the off-off-year elections in Virginia. First, tell us why is this year particularly so important? This year, what's at stake really is control of the uh, state House of Delegates and the state Senate. Uh, For many, many, many years, really since the last time the legislature flipped in 1999, there's a serious chance that what had been a Republican majority uh, in both chambers for most of the past two decades might flip. That's fundamentally what the challenge is. And so for the last how many years, it's been really close in both the Senate and the House. Actually, for most of the past two decades, it's been pretty close in the state Senate. It's been predominantly Republican in the House. And so for the last two years, from 2017, it has been 21-19 in the Senate and 51-49 in the House. With that skinny of a margin in terms of majority, how did that look when they were trying to pass votes, when you know the Republicans didn't have as many to lean on, and it came down to those close votes so many times? Well, one of the interesting things that happened is we started to see some differentiation in uh, the Republican caucus, uh, particularly on the House side. Before 2017, when the Republicans had two-thirds of the House, the discipline was extremely tight. And that was one reason why um, Medicaid expansion, which is one of the big talking points of this election, didn't pass for four years. This year, remember what happened in 2017 was this unexpected blue wave that brought 15 new Democrats to the House of Delegates and got you to that 51-49. Well, with that, some Republicans saw a message. And so you had a number of them about 23, if I remember correctly, changed their point of view about Medicaid expansion. And that probably is the biggest, most dramatic difference. And the the 2017 elections also came down to one race in particular and one vote in particular. Can you talk about that and how significant that is coming into this year's elections? Yep, it did. We had one of those really rare things that happened. Uh, This was in Newport News in the 94th House District where you end up with a tie election. And uh, the process to getting it tied involved the very complicated and often invisible stuff that happens after you cast your ballot when the electoral board is verifying. And there was some back and forth about whether it was really a tie or not. It was officially declared a tie, which meant that you had to essentially flip a coin, in this case, draw film canisters out of a bowl in Richmond. And that's how uh, Delegate David Yancey, who's the Republican in that district, was returned I suppose I should say reelected, but I tend to say returned to the House of Delegates, and that made it 51-49. And so now it seems like because of that race in particular, the the get out the vote message is really, really loud this time around, especially in that race where the two candidates are going at it again. What have you seen in terms of the push to get out the vote, and uh, particularly in this area? 
Well, it's been particularly intense in the 94th district and in a couple others around the area. Um, the 93rd, which is also in Newport News and extends up to Williamsburg. The reason for that is earlier this year, a panel of federal judges overturned the districts that had been set in a lot of Hampton Roads and in Metro Richmond. It did so on the grounds that the redistricting that occurred in 2011 basically packed African Americans into several districts in a way that diluted their voting power. The consequence has been that in David Yancey's district, for instance, it became even more Democratic than it was. I think some of the, the figures I've seen talk about a Democratic age that's in the double-digit percentage points. That meant that Yancey had to be out on the street even more than he usually is with the door knocking and the getting to know you. And the same hand, Mike Mullen, the delegate from the northern part of Newport News, was doing the same because he got a bunch of Republican-leaning precincts. And there's a couple others in Hampton Roads, the Suffolk 76th District, Chris Jones, a couple in Virginia Beach that are like that too. So you've covered elections for a long time here. How have you seen it change in terms of the candidates going out and talking to their new voters, talking to their old constituents, and just the attention on these races? How has that differed over the years? Well, the attention is something else. And probably Chris Jones's district, which is basically in Suffolk, is a really interesting one to watch. Delegate Jones, who first off is important to point out as chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, is one of the most powerful politicians in Richmond. Jones, for many, many years, had run with no opposition. The redistricting made his district dramatically more Democratic. I think it was the biggest swing in the whole state in terms of leaning Republican, now leaning definitively Democratic. And that's had a big consequence in terms of the way that Delegate Jones has been campaigning, which has been... You know, there's been a lot of flyers, there's been TV ads, I believe, but it also has had a statewide impact that I think a lot of people may have missed, and that's that as a leader of a powerful committee in the state legislature, Delegate Jones has real fundraising muscle. In the past, when he didn't need that funding for his own campaign, he was able to pay for candidates or help candidates in other districts, and that just isn't there this year. The same thing is happening with the Speaker of the House near Petersburg in Colonial Heights. And again, I think that's, that's the sort of thing that could really have a, a fairly significant impact on whether the House flips or not. So what are the, the possible scenarios when it comes to November 5th in terms of who flips what, who gets what seats? What's at stake is whether the Democrats can, can capture both houses. It's, it's really always really tough to prognosticate for an off-off-year election. And one reason, I think, gets you down to what happens in an off-off-year election, and some of that is that people don't show up. And so the last time that the state Senate and the House of Delegates were up for election in 2015, the voter turnout was about 29 percent. I'm going to forget my percentages, but I think in 2018, for the congressional election, where there was a lot of energy that is coming out of people's feelings about Washington. We had something like about a 59% turnout. And in 2017, when you had that same kind of energy in the state elections for the House of Delegates and the governor's office, you still had, I think, well over 40%. So what pundits usually say is, is that low, low turnout elections tend to favor Republicans because a lot of their voters are very dedicated. They're the kind of old coots like me who like go out and vote every time. What's different this time and what no one really knows is, is that energy, um, 
anger maybe that got these really big turnouts in 2017 and 2018 going to happen in 2019? Does the amount of money raised in this year give you any indication that turnout is going to be higher? I mean, this is we have several races where the candidates have raised over a million dollars. Is that any indication for you? We've had million dollar plus races in the past, and I don't I don't remember that we had these unusual bumps in turnout for that. So that one's really hard to tell. One of the things that I've always used as kind of an indicator for that is not so much the gross total of money raised, but kind of what's happening with the small stuff. In Virginia, candidates are required to tell any donations over 100 bucks. All they do with donations of under that is tally that up. And that's traditionally been this kind of sign of, well, you know, here's the, here's the level of grassroots, you know. Uh, you give five bucks to a candidate, it's like putting a yard sign in your yard. It's, it's a sign of commitment more than a financial resource. What's a little harder to tell this time is that we have seen a lot of really small donations coming, particularly on the Democratic side. But there's also a fairly conscious, really nationwide effort to sort of organize this kind of donation. So does that translate to a lot of turnout on Election Day? That's another big question. So the possible scenarios are Democrats take control of both the House and the Senate, Republicans keep control of both the House and the Senate, or one of the parties flips one and keeps the other. So if that is the case, how does it work with having a House that's one party, a Senate that's another party, for example, and then the governor, who is uh, still in office, a Democrat for two more terms, how does that work in terms of passing legislation? One of the things that, that's kind of this old truism around Richmond is that there's two parties for the first, you know, three quarters or more of, an, of every session. There's the Democrats and the Republicans. In the last couple of weeks, when it's time to sort of reconcile all the bills, there's two parties, the House and the Senate. One of the things that I think we often miss, especially at a time when partisan feeling is so intense, is that there's other politics at play when the General Assembly convenes. There's the politics of House versus Senate. There's the politics of legislative branch versus executive branch. And I'm sure Governor Bob McDonnell, who was a Republican with Republican-controlled legislatures through his term, would sometimes have felt that. He didn't always get what he wanted. And so if there were to be a split between the partisan control of the House and the Senate doesn't necessarily make it any harder or easier what will be easy for legislation would be if you have a Democratic governor for the next nearly two years and a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. This is, of course, the Republicans' kind of main selling point, which is if you have that, then you have a state government, they will say, that looks like New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts. I think that's a political talking point because, in fact, it's still Virginia. You could have one other scenario that I know slipped your mind, which is whatever happens in the House and then a tie Senate, in which case that could present this really interesting and and really fraught situation that the tiebreaker would be Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. And that would allow all kinds of political posturing looking ahead towards 2021 and the gubernatorial election. 
with Justin Fairfax, we can remind people, is a Democrat and is facing still his own scandal from February in which he was accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Yes, that's right. So hypothetically, if Democrats flip both the House and the Senate, what do you think are some of the top issues that are going to be top of mind for them once they get into session in terms of legislation? Um, top of the list is probably dealing with gun violence. They're very upset that when the governor, Governor Northam, called the special session for the summer in the wake of the mass shooting in Virginia Beach, that the legislature met for 90 minutes and then said, well, we'll come back after the election. So there's going to be a lot of bills that are going to, and probably several versions of this, basically saying the same thing of universal background checks, you know, assault weapons ban or assault type weapons ban. Um, I have had too many people lecture me about assault weapons and what they really are, and probably some kind of red flag law. The other thing is going to be there will be a vote on ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, which is, of course, the amendment to the federal constitution that is one state away away from being ratified into law. There will be a lot of talk about fully funding schools. There's also this undercurrent of tension that we've been getting some hints of from the Secretary of Finance, Aubrey Lane, who works for the governor, that the money may be kind of not there. And so that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch because the governor is continuing to talk about things like free community college education, expanding preschool access to um, all of Virginia. So where the money is and how the Democrats, if they're in control, respond to that, an open question. Another kind of interesting one is going to be the right to work law. Right to work means that you don't have to join a union or more precisely pay union dues if the union has negotiated a contract that you benefit from in terms of wages and grievance protections and all that sort of stuff. Virginia law currently says that you don't have to pay those dues. It is possibly the number one issue of the labor movement, and it's been something that a number of Democrats have said, this is something we want to address. A number of Democrats are very, very quietly saying, maybe, maybe not. So that'll be one where some of the tensions that we sometimes see in national politics between different wings of whether it's the Democratic or Republican Party, that may be a place where that tension becomes evident if there is a Democratic majority and within the caucus at that point. It'll be interesting because we've seen that with the Republicans for a couple of years now, where within that party, there's been some disagreements. So if the Democrats do flip, it'll be interesting to see whether that happens there. The other things I had on my list were um, decriminalization of marijuana could be one that comes up. Yeah. Voting rights, you know, getting rid of absentee voting, that sort of thing might come up. I think that was brought up a lot and has been continuously shut down mm -hmm. um, by the Republicans. So that'll be interesting. There's also going to be an interesting one that it's really going to be worth keeping an eye on. It'll, it'll go up before the Privileges and Elections Committee, too, which is that um, second vote, confirming vote on independent redistricting. If, for instance, control of the legislature flips, will the new guys in town really find the idea of nonpartisan redistricting, and redistricting is going to happen in 2021, how will they find that? Right, because if the Democrats suddenly find themselves in power, they will have the power to redraw the lines uh, next year and would have those maps for a decade. So taking that away from them after session campaigning on independent redistricting, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric that that ain't going to happen. But, you know, temptation is temptation. 
So in terms of ads and campaigns and that sort of thing this year, how do you think the ties to Governor Northam, to Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and to Donald Trump have been appearing in the ads, as well as the issues, you know, stemming from the Virginia Beach mass shooting back in May, the abortion rhetoric that's been going on. How loudly have you seen those appear? Some have been really loud. The gun violence and the mass shooting and reaction to it has been really pointed I think here in Virginia Beach in particular, it's been a feature in advertising and it's been a point of controversy about whether relatives of those victims were or were not recorded with their consent. It's something that's featured in flyers all around the state. It's one of the distinguishing things between most Democrats and many Republicans. There have been a few Republicans who have tried to sort of tackle the issue by saying, well, I'm there on some gun control I'm not going to say anything about universal background checks, but I will say I'm in favor of red flag or I'm in favor of cracking down on gun trafficking. It's something we've heard on the peninsula side a lot. Abortion is a real base issue. This has been really intense and there's been a lot of discussion of this featured on advertising and on flyers in part because of that late-term abortion reform bill that Delegate Kathy Tran brought to the floor. That was a bill that proposed a change in the way that Virginia deals with very late-term abortions in the third trimester. Currently, the law says you need not only your physician's approval, but the approval of two other physicians. The discussion of the bill, particularly by the governor, which was characterized as, eventually characterized as an infanticide bill, got complicated because the governor was trying to explain, um, as if to a medical school audience, what happens when you have an emergency, extremely late-term abortion, and what happens to the fetus, to the child at that time. It was not a triumph of gubernatorial clarity, and it became very easy then for opponents of abortion to say that the bill was about infanticide, which is typically how it's been characterized on a lot of flyers. So that's going to be something that has been on a lot of flyers and will be a talking point in the election. I've noticed some candidates don't even put their opponent's name or face on the mailer. It'll be, you know, Northam, Fairfax. I've seen McAuliffe on some of them, you know, without mentioning the opponent. And then I've seen the opponent linked to Trump and just have, you know, you don't want Trump's White House in Richmond. In 2017, Trump was a huge factor in why candidates ran for office and why people turned out and why Democrats got 15 seats. Now, how much do you think that having that R next to your name and being associated with Trump is playing into these elections? That's a really good question. Um, You know, I was up in the Valley this weekend, and one of the things that I've noticed that's kind of distinctive is that's the only place in Virginia where I've seen the yard signs that say, in this case, this is up around Stanton, you know, John Avoli, Republican for delegate. Uh, you just don't see a lot of party ID, really on either party, in a lot of these signs. You do, however, see, particularly this coming from the Democratic candidates, uh, attempt to sort of tie their Republican opponents to the president. How that will play is going to be something that that we'll be watching, I think, really rather closely. And Virginia Beach, for instance, I think that's going to be something that whatever the end result in races like the Glenn Davis race or the Dr. Chris Stolle race in the beach, that could be a factor. I'm going to be watching for that 
on the peninsula on what has long been a very, very uh, Republican district up in northern James City County because that's one of those suburban counties where, like the beach, like Loudoun County in northern Virginia, like uh, Henrico County and uh, Chesterfield County around Richmond, where the president really hasn't played that well. There's a lot of traditionally Republican voters just don't like that. How they'll respond, whether that's I stay home, whether that's I'm going to vote for a Democrat, I'm not sure. And whether that's enough to swing an election off off year, again, that's the question. Well, I will not put you on the spot and ask you your predictions of what's going to happen, but I know that you will be out on election night, as will I and a bunch of other reporters, and you can find all of our election night coverage on pilotonline.com and dailypress.com, and polls are open from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, so please go out and vote and uh, follow along. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That's it for this week. You can find all the episodes of Beyond the Headlines wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a comment and tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. I'm Marie Albajez. Thanks for listening.